Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 320th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, and brought to you today by ICD University. And joining me this morning is my co-host, the very popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD Incorporated. Good morning, Erica. Good morning, Chuck, and welcome back. Good morning, everyone. Hey, it's nice to be back. And this morning we're going to be discussing a recent news story. It's a topic that for some really isn't new news. That's right. It's old news, and it shows no sign of going away anytime soon, at least not in the near future. (laughs) Okay. Uh, This morning we're going to be discussing a recent national survey that reveals a wage gap between men and women physicians. And ironically, today is actually National Equal Pay Day, Erica. Like I said, old news. And for me, as with many of my peers, it's personal, too. And uh, joining us this morning is Dr. Juliet Ugarte-Hopkins. Dr. Ugarte-Hopkins is a physician advisor for case management, utilization, and clinical documentation at ProHealthCare in Wisconsin. Juliet is stepping in for my colleague, Dr. Valerie Dobiez, who got called in at the last minute with clinical duties this morning at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Such is the life of an emergency physician. Indeed it is, and we're delighted to have Dr. Ugarte Hopkins with us this morning. She's a frequent guest, of course, on Monitor Monday. And, Erica, you have a personal story on this subject to share with us later in the broadcast. So here's the issue. Could wage disparity contribute to physician burnout? Well, for insight into our continuous reporting on burnout, we're joined this morning by nationally renowned psychiatrist H. Stephen Moffat. And since burnout is prevalent among nurses, too, we've asked New York Times bestselling author Leanne Tiemann to report on this issue. Indeed. Uh, Leanne's name, if that sounds familiar to you, is because she co-authored Chicken Soup for the Nurse's Soul, along with 14 other Chicken Soup titles. We're delighted to have Leanne on the broadcast. She is the founder and president of Self-Care for Healthcare. And since April is Parkinson's Disease Awareness Month, Gloria Ann Bryant will report on coding the disease that is in the nation's spotlight this month. Well, let's check in with Gloria Ann Bryant at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University, inviting you to register for an upcoming webcast on Five Steps to Conquer Confusion about Coding Spinal Fusion. It's April 25th, and it features Lori Johnson. Here now is Lori Ann Bryant. Thank you, and hello, everyone. It's National Parkinson's Disease Awareness Month, and we wanted to talk about that with you today. And even globally, April 11th is International Parkinson's Disease Awareness Day. So let's talk a little bit about the disease and ICD-10-CM diagnostic coding. Parkinson's disease, or PD, which is listed as an abbreviation in all the literature, is a neurodegenerative disease of the brain which impacts an individual's motor function. Parkinson's is the most common, is a very common neurological disease and disorder affecting approximately 1 million people here in the United States and an estimated 60,000 Americans are diagnosed with Parkinson's disease each year. That's astounding. And this number does not reflect the thousands of cases that go undetected. And then worldwide, up to 14 million people have a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease. And this disease has several 
associated complications and problems like dysphagia, sleep disorder, depression, dementia, constipation, risk of falling, just to mention a few. I've listed some others in my article in the ICD Monitor, so you can review that for more details. Now, looking at ICD-10 CM coding of Parkinson's disease, we'll be located in Chapter 6, Diseases of the Nervous System. In the code range in that whole chapter is G00 through G99. So if we were looking up how to code or what is the code for Parkinson's disease, we can find it a couple ways. The most common is to look under the word disease and then locate Parkinson's, and it gives you the code G20 just a three-character code of G20. Go to the tabular, of course, and look and confirm the appropriateness of that G20 code. Now, as I mentioned, Parkinson's disease often has associated dementia, and you will see Parkinsonism dementia listed and the additional code of F0280, and that code is dementia and other diseases classified elsewhere without behavioral disturbances. So yes, you do see Parkinson's disease with dementia and you're going to be assigning the G20 and then the F0280 for the dementia without behavioral disturbances. Now that code will appear in brackets, the, the F02 code, and it indicates that the code would be assigned but a secondary code. In the tabular under that G20, it would be then sequenced first, G20 first, and then the FO2. There's also the FO281, so again, that is the manifestation of dementia in diseases classified elsewhere with and without behavioral disturbances. So you need to look at the tabular for the full descriptions and all of the instructions. There is a code first and a use additional code note that is listed and that can help with sequencing in the classification as we know. In the tabular under the G20 Parkinson's disease, there uh, we would code also if that was described as hemi-Parkinsonism, idiopathic Parkinsonism, or just Parkinson's disease. And there is a type one excludes note for dementia with Parkinsonism. Now here's the catch, I just discussed that. And so what we wanna look up is Parkinsonism and that goes to the G3183 code. But there is a recent AHA coding clinic about this. It was in the second quarter of 2017, which identifies that this G3183 code for dementia with Parkinsonism may not be correct and that we should be assigning that G20 code. And that is being reviewed by the National Center for Health Statistics under the CDC for the classification may have an error in it, potentially. So review the coding clinic very closely because like all of us know in the coding world, we have our official coding guidelines and then we have our AHA coding clinic guidance as well. So we need to be reading both of those thoroughly. With Parkinson's disease coding, you will be also assigning your associated disease complications, signs and symptoms, and you'll find a lot of those in Chapter 18. So yes, it's a lot to code in, even with a simple three-character G code for Parkinsonism, but review the guidelines, review your coding clinic, and you should get it right. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Lorianne, very much. That was National Coding Authority, Gloria Ann Bryan. Gloria Ann is past president 
of the California Health Information Association. Gloria Ann has 35 years of experience in the coding field as an educator, author, mentor, and as an ICD-10 contributor. Thanks very much. It's Tuesday. It's April 10th. It's National Equal Pay Day, and you're listening to the 320th edition of Tuck 10 Tuesday. Stand by. Talk 10 Tuesday is brought to you today by ICD University, inviting you to listen to an on-demand webcast about the ICD-10 coding of Parkinson's disease, and it features Glorianne Bryant. ICD-10 CM coding of Parkinson's disease and associated complications is critical to data quality and integrity. Learning more about this disease, the manifestations and complications, along with documentation and diagnostic coding is vital. Accurate diagnostic coding can impact outcomes, quality scores, and reimbursement, as will be demonstrated in this exclusive ICD-10 Monitor webcast now available on demand. To access the webcast, click on the ad on the ICD-10 Monitor homepage or call 800-252-1578, extension 2. We've been reporting on burnout, primarily burnout among physicians, but burnout is also prevalent among nurses. For more on this troubling issue, here is nurse and New York Times bestselling author Leanne Tiemann. Good morning, Leanne. Welcome back to Talk 10 Tuesday. Good morning. You know, often all of us in healthcare, and I always say we're all the caregivers, even ICD coders are caregivers, and all health caregivers these days are under a lot of stress, no matter your role. Sometimes we're so busy doing our jobs and taking care of everybody else that we neglect to take care of ourselves, and it can have tolls on our bodies that we don't always even recognize. So I always like to share lists of symptoms of stress. And while I know our listeners can't raise their hand, I'm hoping that everyone will put a little mental check by any of these symptoms that might apply. Physical symptoms of too much stress might include appetite changes, headaches, fatigue, poor sleeping, frequent illnesses, digestive problems, a pounding heart, grinding teeth, rash, restlessness, foot tapping, finger drumming, nail biting, smoking, increased alcohol intake. And there are mental symptoms of too much stress, forgetfulness, poor concentration, forgetful, oh, sorry about that, so sorry, (laughs) dull senses, lethargy, boredom, low productivity, a negative attitude, anxiety, the blues, mood swings, anger, bad dreams, irritability, crying spells, nervous laughter, a loss of a loving feeling in our lives. And too often we forget that there are actually spiritual symptoms from having too much stress. Those might include feelings of emptiness, loss of meaning, doubt, martyrdom, loss of direction, cynicism, apathy, abandonment, worry, isolation, distrust, and a feeling like nobody cares. So if you happen to put any check marks by any of those, um, then what do we do about it? Well, of course, that's my life's work in reminding people that in order to cope with all the stressors we have in our lives, we have to be strong of mind, body, and spirit. That's why we have to care for our bodies physically, mentally, and spiritually every day. You know, I think we can't avoid all the stress in our lives, but it's important to remember that the impact that stress has on our lives is not always determined by our exposure to the stress, but our response to it. A halted traffic and rude tellers and incompetent coworkers don't cause our hearts to beat and our blood pressures to rise. Our response does. 
you know, my mama was right. She said, you can't control the situation. You can only control your reaction to it. Life is inherently stressful, and I think we need to realize how much of that we have control over and how much of it we do not. And one of the things that is causing a lot of stress today, really, is our technology and even social media. I've been reading a lot more recently about all the stress that's coming from unexpected places of even Facebook and Snapchat and Instagram and LinkedIn and, and Twitter and even Pinterest. People are spending so many more hours on their social media and realizing that in some studies are showing it even causes increased depression for some people. You know, um, there's more information than ever flowing into our lives. And when we're tracking what's happening to friends and frenemies and foes and what everybody else in our profession is doing and this one-upmanship and I'm keeping up and it, it can really take a lot of stress on people's lives. People are paying attention to how their likes and their followers and it can cause elation or depression and it's affecting sometimes people's self-esteem. So I always remind people and I will again today, it's important to minimize and be attentive to how much time you spend on technology whether it is ruling you or if you are ruling it. You know, there's no reason to be stretched and no reason to be so stressed. I think we need to identify our stressors, and even if we can't control the situation, remember we have the power to control our reaction to it. My mama was right. (laughs) Thanks, Leanne. That was Leanne Tiemann, nurse and a nationally acclaimed author who co-authored the New York Times bestseller, Chicken Soup for the Nurse's Soul. Leanne is the founder and president of Self-Care for Healthcare. We continue our coverage of burnout, and this morning we're reporting on what might be one of the causes of burnout among female physicians. Perhaps it's the gender wage disparity. Joining us now is nationally renowned psychiatrist Dr. H. Stephen Moffat. So, Dr. Moffat, to me it seems that women physicians might be carrying perhaps a disproportionate load on their shoulders as wives, as mothers, in many cases, household managers, plus being a woman in a profession dominated by men. Is that the situation, do you think, Dr. Moffitt? Yeah, you bet, Chuck. Even though one might hope and even assume that burnout and related problems were and are less common in medicine than what the Me Too movement has conveyed about women in other work environments, after all, we are supposed to be devoted to helping others ethically first and foremost patients, but secondarily to colleagues. Unfortunately, it looks like the situation in medicine may be just about as bad. For example, in general medicine, the results of a survey of career development awardees from 2006 to 2009 revealed that 30% of women reported experiencing sexual harassment compared to 4% of men. The researcher of that study felt that the problems have been at least as bad in medicine as elsewhere in society, especially if sexual harassment in the other direction was added by male patients to female physicians. Let me repeat that, that women physicians are not uncommonly sexually harassed by male patients. Besides that, surveys indicate that women physicians were far more likely to perceive patient bias against their gender compared with male physicians, 41% to 6% as well as being somewhat more likely to hear negative comments about their age and weight. Since on this show we focus on ICD-10, which is international, we should also note that harassment and the like involving women in healthcare are even higher in many other countries. In psychiatry, my field, a leader of the Women Psychiatrist Caucus of the American Psychiatric Association, wrote that unreported sexual harassment also occurred in psychiatric workplaces, and when it does, often contributed to underconfidence, overeating, 
shame, silence, and possibly worsen the victims. The report ended with the recommendation for, quote, well-established guidelines on sexual harassment and consequences for transgressors, end of quote, but doesn't say what those are and who is responsible for monitoring them. In regards to burnout specifically, some of those findings fit right in with what we know about medical systems which cause burnout. That is, being disempowered and frustrated and subject to everyday micro-traumas. It is not mainly from the amount of time spent working at a job and at home. Clearly, women physicians are subject to all the system problems that cause burnout in men, including dislike EHRs, inadequate time with patients, and limited treatment options. So when you add on wage disparities, leadership disparities, and the common challenges of home life responsibilities, no wonder that their burnout rate seems to be 10 percentage points higher than that of men. That disparity seems also to hold for women psychiatrists, even though psychiatry traditionally seemed to be a haven for women in medicine. In general, if a wage doesn't feel fair, it contributes to burnout. Psychologically, that wage disparity conveys that women are not as valuable as men at work. So, to paraphrase a famous legal argument, if the wage doesn't fit, we must remit. In nursing, traditionally a more female profession than medicine, the term moral distress seems to be used as a substitute for burnout. It would seem that in terms of burnout in women physicians, that there's a need for moral activism and more women leadership with motherly caring to reduce these moral disparities. As President Trump has reaffirmed, it is also National Sexual Assault Awareness and Prevention Month, and the timing of this program could therefore not be better. Chuck, back to you. Thanks very much, Dr. Moffick. That was Dr. H. Stephen Moffick. Dr. Moffick is a nationally renowned psychiatrist. He's also a member of a new work group at the American Psychiatric Association, one that's dealing with psychiatrists and physician burnout. And Dr. Moffick's going to be a co-author of a new book on burnout among psychiatrists. Thanks again, Dr. Moffick. At the top of the broadcast, I mentioned that our co-host here at Talk 10 Tuesdays, Dr. Erica Reamer, has a personal story to tell. It's a story about her experience with a gender wage discrepancy dispute with her former employee. Once again, here's Dr. Reamer. Chuck really wanted me to share with you my story, and I was reluctant. I hesitate to burn bridges, but I realize it is more important than just me and my situation. We will never affect change if no one is willing to share her story. I am so fortunate to be in the position that I am able to make that choice. So here goes. I knew nothing when I was interviewing for my PA position. I was sitting in the conference room, tuning out the muckety-mucks because I couldn't tell a CMO from a CNO. I was a full-time mom, a half-time emergency physician, and about to pick up a .4 FTE as a CDI advisor, a job I knew absolutely nothing about yet. I had been an expert in documentation and professional billing, but it was at that moment that it struck me that the hospital gets paid too. The hourly rate I was being offered was two-thirds what I made as a doctor, but I was the first and only doctor in health information services, and as is not unusual for women, I didn't make waves and didn't negotiate my starting salary. I taught myself everything I needed to know about CDI and spent 18 months designing modules to teach 70 subspecialties and 2,700 providers ICD-10. I taught CDI to the doctors. I supported the CDSs and coders by closing queries and educating. I fought clinical validation and medical necessity denials. 
I participated in four mortality review conferences a week and gave specific feedback to hundreds of providers a month. I went to full-time six months into my employment. After three years, I timidly asked for a raise. They begrudgingly gave me a $5 per hour raise. When my associate physician advisor was elevated to chief experience officer, I was asked what I wanted to be able to continue to support all of our network hospitals. I jokingly asked for a male surgeon. Actually, I half-jokingly asked for a male surgeon because I didn't like interacting with the acting chief of surgery. I pointed out that they were never going to get one for what they paid, however. Long story short, they picked a male surgeon friend of mine, and he called me up excited to share the news. He ended with, and I can't believe how well they pay. Incredulously, I asked what they were paying him and discovered it was a third again what they were paying me. I felt like I had been punched in the stomach. I had tunnel vision. I had been there for three and a half years, had obtained my CCDS, was going to have to teach him everything because he knew nothing, and they were paying him more than me, a lot more. It brought me back to the beginning of my career when I found out that a male ED doc who was a year behind me in residency was making $20 an hour more than me in the same company for shifts at the same hospital at the same level. When I called up the scheduler and told them what they could do with my last 11 night shifts, I got a retroactive pay raise. The next five weeks were like a whirlwind and like a slow motion movie. That evening, I found Betsy Rader, who is currently running for U.S. Congress in the 14th District. She supported me through the process of bringing a complaint to compliance for gender wage discrimination. At the time, I was not prepared to lose my PA job, which made it stickier. And the biggest problem was that the intended employee had not signed his contract, so the administration was able to manipulate the numbers so it appeared that they were paying him the same hourly rate as me. His department was just offsetting the difference. During discovery, I found out my initial salary had been erroneously determined by HR by taking a mid-range emergency salary and dividing it by 40 hours a week. ED physicians usually work around 32 hours a week. I declined to pursue formal legal action. For the following four months, I was extremely depressed and suffered from severe insomnia. When they brought in a consultant to assess the organization, I gave them an ultimatum that if they didn't make me whole, I was going to leave. My deadline came and went, and so did I. In July 2016, I committed to being an independent consultant in documentation, CDI, and ICD-10, intent on sharing my knowledge with the greater healthcare community. I am quite happy writing articles and traveling to give presentations. I love helping organizations get their documentation in order, and I love co-hosting Talk 10 Tuesdays and being here with you. So it worked out just fine for me. But not all women are as lucky. In Ohio, we make 77% of what a man makes for doing the same job. Pay parity for white women is estimated as coming in 2059. Black women will have to wait until 2124, and Latinas will have to wait until 2233. Sharing this story is embarrassing and humbling, but I do it because I hope it will empower other women to come forward and be the change we all want to see. Thanks for your understanding. Chuck, back to you.
Thank you, Erica, very, very much. If you have a similar story, please send me an email at cbuck at medlearnmedia.com. Thanks again, Erica, very much. Our lead story this morning is about wage disparity and the gender gap and its possible link to burnout, especially among women physicians. With more on this developing story is Dr. Juliet Hugarte Hopkins. Dr. Hugarte Hopkins is a physician advisor for case management, utilization, and clinical documentation of pro-health care in Wisconsin. Dr. Uliad Hugarte, you have been in healthcare for quite some time. What has been your experience with the issue of gender and wage disparity? Good morning. Today I'm coming to you not from my usual home base in southeastern Wisconsin, but from the warm and humid landscape that is Orlando as I attend the Hospital Medicine 2018 hosted by the Society of Hospital Medicine. It's a bit of a homecoming, as this impressive group of physicians from all over the country is my original medical clan as a former pediatric hospitalist. Looking out over the landscape of thousands of attendees surging in between educational sessions, I'm struck by the undeniable parity between women and men present here. It's one of the most equal distributions of gender I've ever seen in a large group of physicians and makes the topic of this piece even more confusing in my mind. Women are almost half of the workforce in the United States, but historically, they earn less than men in nearly every single occupation. According to the Institute of Women's Policy Research, in 2016, female full-time employees made only 80.5 cents for every dollar earned by their, their male counterparts for a wage gap of 20%. A few weeks ago, Doximity released its second annual physician compensation report. Based on more than 65,000 physician respondents, they found that between 2016 and 2017, compensation rose 4% nationally. But when accounting for gender, female doctors earned 27.7% less than male doctors. This amounts to a whopping $105,000 less annually for female physicians. Even more frustrating, this gap increased by 1.2% in 2017 compared to 2016. Focusing on physicians, let's forgo the points about occupational segregation and taxing motherhood, the concepts that women are marginalized into lower-paying jobs, and paid less when they returned to the workplace after taking time away to raise small children and concentrate on sexism. Are thousands of health systems and physician groups around the country truly asserting their female physicians are less valuable or qualified than their male physicians? Do they stand by the argument that men are historically the primary breadwinners and need to be paid more to support their families? Is paying female physicians less than their male counterparts a legitimate method of cost control? These are the exact questions which should be asked by any woman who learns she is being paid less than her male peers, immediately followed by a demand for equalization of salary the following month. I understand that this is easier said than done. Few of us seek out conflict, especially with our employers. And the idea of asking for a raise is notoriously difficult for men and women alike. But this has to be reviewed in a different light. First of all, this is not asking for a raise. It's demanding to be treated fairly and with the respect deserved. Any argument against this conversation is simply invalid. Secondly, it's a piece of a larger problem. What other concerning mindsets and decisions are being made in an institution which is comfortable with placing a percentage of their medical staff 
in a lesser category than others simply based on their sex. For the entirety of my clinical practice, I was aware of the salary for each of my group's members because we negotiated and discussed salary with our hospital administrators as a unit. New physicians who came into our fold were paid the same as those of us who'd been there for years, as we were all performing the same job. Male or female, experienced or just out of residency, we were all paid the same. As a physician advisor, I'm the first and only in my health system, so there's no peer or historical salary of a predecessor to compare to. But you can be certain that once we start adding more into the ranks, I will pointedly ask about pay. While this should not be a concern, it most certainly is. Like any other concern, in my opinion, it's best to face it head on instead of waiting for a shoe to drop. Back to you, Erica. Thanks, Juliet. That was Juliet Ugarte Hopkins. Juliet is a physician advisor for case management, utilization, and clinical documentation at ProHealthCare, Inc. in Washington. Chuck? Thank you very much, Erica, and thank you again, Dr. Juliet Ugarte Hopkins. Uh, that's going to be a wrap for this, our 320th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. And Erica and I want to thank our guests today, Gloria Ann Bryan, Leanne Tiemann, Dr. H. Stephen Moffick, and our special guest whom you just heard, Dr. Juliet Ugarte Hopkins. Hope you're going to be right back here next Tuesday for another edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. And I want to thank Dennis Jones, who was sitting in for me last Tuesday. Until we see each other next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck, speaking on behalf of Dr. Erica Reamer and everyone here at Talk 10 Tuesday. And I CD10 Monitor. Thanks very much. Have a great week, everyone. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD 10 Monitor.